I want you to join me in the Old Testament book of Psalms. So I know one of you or a few of you may be wondering, well, I thought we were journeying through Job. We are, but I want you to, first of all, meet me in the Old Testament book of, of Psalms, the 119th division of the Psalm, beginning at verse 71. And it says this, this is David speaking, and David says, it was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. And that is the New International Version. I want to share with you another translation, the New Living Translation, that says it this way. In the New Living Translation, it translates um, this verse from the original Hebrew to English this way. My suffering was good for me, for it taught me to pay attention to your decrees. And that's what we want to talk about in week four of this amazing teaching series, What Is God Doing? We want to talk for a few moments and study the life of Job with this understanding or topic, seeing through suffering. Seeing through suffering. The New Living Translation of this verse from David says, my suffering was good for me. Now, it's really easy to initially look at this verse in Psalm 119 and think, what in the world does this statement from David, what does it have to do with the book of Job and the life of Job? And I know that that's what's on some of your minds. That's what some of you may be thinking about. And and I want you to understand this. It has everything to do with it because as we uh, connect with Job in this uh, fourth installment of this teaching series, what we're going to see when we examine the life of Job this week is simply that during seasons of suffering, this is the truth, the the big main truth that God wants us to understand that we're going to see through the life of Job. During seasons of suffering, the veil between us and God gets thinner. That's so important. I've got to say it again. What we're going to see in, in this uh, purview of Job's life is that during seasons of suffering, during seasons of difficulty, during seasons of challenge, during seasons of brokenness, there's something very special that happens. And what happens is that the veil between us and God gets thinner. What do I mean when I say that the veil gets thinner? I mean that during seasons of suffering and difficulty and challenges, we see more of God. We experience more of God's supernatural power when we are suffering than we do when we're not. I got to say that again. When we are going through seasons of suffering, we will see more of God and experience more of his supernatural power when we're going through those seasons of suffering and difficulty than when we're not going through it. This is why David in turn says, you know what? It was good for me to be afflicted because even through the difficulty, he says, well, wait a minute. There's some things about my relationship with God. There's some things about what God did in me. The veil got thinner. He says, I I could learn your decrees. I could pay attention to you. I could sense your presence and your power in my life unlike any other time. And so David says, it was good that I suffered. It was good that I was afflicted. And you really see this all through Scripture. Think about it with me for a moment. You see it in Moses' life. Moses is a fugitive. He 
He, he kills a man, buries him in the sand. Pharaoh finds out about it and is hunting uh, for Moses. Moses flees Egypt and ends up spending 40 years on the backside of a Midianite desert shepherding sheep. And so he's going through this season of difficulty, this season of suffering, and it is in the midst of that season that he encounters God in a burning bush. That's, that's so significant. You see it also in the Apostle Paul's life. The Apostle Paul has an encounter with Christ. Christ makes a return visit just to have this encounter with the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road. Paul is knocked off of his high horse. He's temporarily blinded. Talk about suffering. He can't even see. He's temporarily blinded, and it is through that suffering, it is through that difficulty that his whole life shifts. He has this encounter with Christ. And his whole life changes. You also see this in Stephen's life. Stephen is the first deacon of the New Testament church. And Stephen preaches a message. And the Pharisees and others become so angry that they begin to stone Stephen. And this is before um, Saul's conversion to ultimately becoming Paul. And the Bible says that Saul is holding their cloaks while they are stoning Stephen. And through this suffering of being stoned to death... The Bible says that there is an open heaven, and Stephen sees a vision, and he sees, get this, Christ standing at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Now, that's really significant because the Bible is very clear that when Jesus ascended back to heaven, he was seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He took his seat on the throne. But when Stephen has this open vision, while they are throwing rocks at Stephen and stoning him, he doesn't see Christ seated. He sees him standing. The veil between Stephen and God gets so thin that Stephen even sees Christ giving him a standing ovation. You see it all through Scripture. You see it in Moses' life. You see it in the Apostle Paul's life. You see it in Stephen's life. You also see it in Job's life. And here's the truth. The truth is we don't like to go through difficulty. We don't like to struggle. We, we, we don't like to suffer in any way. If, if I were to say let's do a conference, let's do, let's do a, a revival, if you will, on suffering, I would dare say that nobody would attend because it's not a popular subject. It's something that we don't even like to talk about. As a matter of fact, there are a number of people who preach that if you live a certain way or do things a certain way, that you'll never have to experience suffering a day in your life. And that's not true. It's not Bible. It sounds good, and it is something that that we want to hear, but it's not true. Suffering, difficulty is a part of God's purpose for us for a reason, because the veil between us and God gets thinner. We experience more of God's supernatural power, his manifest presence in those difficult times, more than we do when things are easy and comfortable. And you see this in in Job's life. When we meet Job this week, Job is in the midst of extreme suffering. And Job is suffering because of a couple of different reasons. Job is suffering, number one, because of his friends. Now, what's problematic about this is you expect to be hurt by people who don't know you. You expect to be hurt by strangers. You expect 
to be hurt by people that, that have no insight into your character and who you are. But when you are hurt by your friends, when you are hurt by people uh, that have had the luxury to walk with you and sit with you and do life with you, that's really painful. Job is suffering because of his friends. Now, the first several days, Job's friends are stellar. The first several days, Job's friends are very supportive. They're actually good comforters the first several days. And I love it. I love it. I I mentioned it on last Sunday when it says that when Job's friends uh, found out about him, this is in Job 2, that they they stopped what they were doing and they made an appointment to go see about their friend. And, And for several days, they just sit with him and they don't say a mumbling word. They actually practice the ministry of presence. The ministry of presence is when you are there for someone. You don't have to have all the right answers. You don't have to have a solution. You just you just there with them. You just sit with them. You you just you just in their presence. And that's what his friends did for the first several days. For the first several days, his friends are supportive. His friends are great comforters. But then, after Job's honest outbreak in Job chapter three, his friends fall apart. They, in essence, become the three stooges, if you will, because uh, they just mess it up. They started real good, but then they mess it up from there on. Because after Job's outburst in Job chapter 3, his first friend, Eliphaz, speaks. And so pick me up around Job chapter 4 and verse number 1. It says, then Eliphaz, the Temanite, replied to Job, will you be patient and let me say a word? For who could keep from speaking out? In the past, you've encouraged many people. You strengthened those who were weak. Your words have supported those who were falling. You encouraged those with shaky knees. But now when trouble strikes, you lose heart. You are terrified when it touches you. Don't, doesn't your reverence from, for God give you confidence? Doesn't your life of integrity give you hope? Stop and think. Do the innocent die? When have the upright been destroyed? My experience shows that those who plant trouble and cultivate evil will harvest the same. A breath from God destroys them. They vanish in a blast of anger. His friend Eliphaz is the first one to speak up. And when Eliphaz speaks up, in essence, he's saying, you deserve this, Job. In essence, Eliphaz is saying, you must have done something. You, you must have done something to deserve this. And so th- this is not an answer, a uh, response of compassion. It's not a response of understanding because we know that Job hasn't done anything wrong, but because his friend can't figure out any other logical reason, his friend is a bad friend and inflicts more pain on Job than is even necessary because he says, you, you must have done something. You deserve this. You, you, you must have planted trouble. You must have, must have cultivated evil, and so this is the harvest. You've sown this, and so this harvest is coming back to you. Horrible, horrible friend. But then Job's other friend speaks up after Eliphaz. His name is Bildad. Now, Bildad speaks, and you've got to pick me up in Job chapter 8, beginning at verse number 1. Bildad speaks... And here's what Bildad says that's even more problematic than what Eliphaz uh, says. It says in Job 8 and verse 1, it says, Then Bildad, the Shuhite, replied or responded, one translation says to Job, and he says this, How long will you go on like this? 
You sound like a blustering wind. Does God twist justice? Does the Almighty twist what is right? Here it is. Your children must have sinned against him, so their punishment was well-deserved. Ouch. He says, you're going through what you've gone through, Job, because your, your children have sinned. Now, here's what's problematic about that statement. There's nothing in the Bible, nothing in the story of Job that even suggests that his children sinned. In the first week, in Job chapter 1, we looked at the fact that his children would have these elaborate birthday celebrations. And then after the celebration was over, it was Job's custom every morning to, to cover his family in prayer, to cover his children, and to offer uh, burnt offerings just in case um, his children did anything wrong. But the Bible never says that his children sinned. And so listen to what this horrible friend is saying. There's, there's no empirical evidence. There, there was uh, no scenario or situation that suggests that his sins, uh, that his children were sinful. But his horrible friend says, oh, I know why you're going through. I know why you've lost your job. I know why you've lost your family. Because, because your children sinned and their punishment was well-deserved. How insensitive is that? His first friend says, you must have done something wrong. The second friend says, your children have sinned, and so they've been punished. His third friend is named Zophar. And his third friend speaks up, and unfortunately, his third friend doesn't do much better either. In Job chapter 11 and verse number 6, it says this, verse 11, verse 1 rather of Job 11, it says, then Zophar the Namathite replied to Job, shouldn't someone answer this torrent of words? Is a person proved innocent just by a lot of talking? Shouldn't I remain, uh, should I rather remain silent while you babble on? When you mock God, shouldn't somebody make you ashamed? You claim my beliefs are pure and I am clean in the sight of God. If only God would speak, if only he would tell you what he thinks. If only he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for true wisdom is not a simple matter. Listen, God is doubtless punishing you far less than you deserve. Ah, so Zophar says, in essence, shut up, Job. He says, somebody should answer this torrent of words. He says, if somebody proved innocent just by a lot of talking, he says, Job, you're talking a whole bunch, and you just need to shut up. You just need to be quiet. Notice how insensitive his friends are. Zophar literally says, are you done yet? I mean, are you, are you finished? And I can tell you, man, it hurts. Have you ever been in a situation where you are trying to pour your heart out to a friend, to someone that you think cares about you, and, and they really are not paying any attention to you? They're, they're just giving you that, ugh. You know, or maybe they're not as, as obvious as giving you that look like, would you please be quiet? But in their mind, that's what they're thinking. Like, will you ever finish talking? I remember when uh, my wife and I got married, and, uh, man, I was new to marriage and, and new to everything that came with it. And whenever uh, we would get into certain conversations and she would go on and on and on, that's kind of how I would process things. Like, man, would you just get to the end of the story? Or sometimes she would be telling me a story, and what she would need from me 
was compassion. And I would be thinking about, well, let you just, come on, get to the end of the story, so let me help you fix it. But, but what I had to learn, and, you know, don't judge me, but I learned it over time, is that what she needed more than anything else was not for me to fix it, but for me to be compassionate and listen. And that's the same thing that Job is in need of, but so far his last friend doesn't give him that. He's basically saying, man, shut up. Just shut up. You deserve this. You deserve this. None of his friends really listened to him. None of his friends really, really, really gave him compassion. They gave him quick solutions quick answers, and it all revolved around you either did something wrong, God's judging you, your family sinned, and let me tell you something. Some of us, many of us, have along our journey experienced at least one of these accusations where we've gone through difficulties, where we've gone through brokenness, where we've gone through catastrophic seasons, and what we really wanted was people in our life to be there, to, to handle us, to hold us the right way, and they dropped us. But look at how Job responds to his friends. Meet me in Job chapter 13 and verse number 1. Look at how Job responds. Job says, look, I've seen all of this with my own eyes and heard it with my own ears, and now I understand. I know as much as you do. You are no better than I am. As for me, I would speak directly to the Almighty. I want to argue my case with God. As for you, you smear me with lies. As physicians, you are worthless quacks. If only you could be silent. That's the wisest thing you could do. Listen to my charge. Pay attention to my arguments. Are you defending God with lies? Do you make your dishonest arguments for his sake? Will you slant your testimony in his favor? Will you argue God's cause for him? What will happen when he finds out what you were doing? Can you fool him as easily as you fooled people? No. You will be in trouble with him if you secretly slant your testimony in his favor. Doesn't his majesty terrify you? Doesn't your fear of him overwhelm you? Your platitudes are as valuable as ashes. Your defense is as fragile as a clay pot. Be silent now and leave me alone. Job, in essence, says, y'all don't know what you're talking about. You're lying. I haven't done anything wrong. My kids haven't sinned. I haven't sown evil. I don't deserve this harvest in my life. He has tough talk with his friends, but here is the main point. Even though Job is suffering because of his friends, his friends that should be there to comfort him, his friends that should be there to lift him up and, and help carry him through this season of difficulty, they pile on the mess. They pile on the hurt. But what I love about this is even when Job has to say, y'all don't know what you're talking about, be quiet, he doesn't give up on his friends. You look over in Job 17 and verse 10, he turns around and he says, maybe you'd all like to start over, to try again, the bunch of you. He says, so far, I haven't come across one scrap of wisdom in anything you've said. Translation, y'all not making any sense, but let's start over. Let's try again. This is really powerful. Job doesn't shut down on his friends. He says, come back, try again. And I got to point this out because, you know, we live in this, this day and time now 
where the world suggested if somebody gets on your nerves or if they're not being the kind of friend that you need to just discard them, to just uh, throw them away. So many of the songs that we listen to suggest I don't need anybody and I'm fine by myself, and that's not true. One of the things that I talked about in my book, The People Factor, is how we want relationships of steel But far too often we traffic in plastic. We throw people away like they're disposable. And I want to point out to you that even though Job is suffering because of his friends, he doesn't give up on his friends. He says, y'all are wrong. There's no wisdom in what you're saying. He says, but come back. Try again. And that's the word for many of us, even going through this season of difficulty. That's the word. Because some of us have given up on friends and even ended relationships simply because they didn't handle certain moments when we were suffering the right way. But here's the truth. We are all flawed. We are all fallible. Translation, nobody will get it right all of the time. His friends, the first several days, they were amazing friends. Job knew that he wouldn't go on through this by himself because his friends were there. It was only later when they started speaking up that they started trying to figure out, well, there must be a reason, Job, why you're going through this. And they said things that were not true. Point is, they were effective friends at one point in his life. And I want to challenge you to think about some of those relationships that you've said maybe during this season that, you know what, I don't need them, and uh, uh, forget about them, and, and you've even attempted to throw some of those people away. I want to challenge you before you do that to look back over the horizon of your relationship. Because the truth is, at one point they were valuable friends, which is why you entered into a friendship with them in the first place. And if at one point they were valuable, chances are they could potentially be valuable again. But you know what? When you go through seasons of difficulty, Sometimes people just don't know what to say. And I've learned that. I've learned that. One of the greatest uh, skills that God has been developing in me is just sometimes the liberty to say, I don't know what to say. I remember early in ministry, I used to feel like I had to have the answer for everything. And I would try to, like Joe's friends, just figure out there's got to be a reason. But sometimes people don't need to hear the reason. People just need to know that whatever the issue is, you're there and you care. So I want to challenge you, like Job, don't be so quick to throw your friends away, even when they say foolish things. Look back over the horizon of your relationship, because if they were valuable at some point, chances are they may be valuable in the future, but maybe right in through here, it's just been hard for them to figure out, what, what do I do now? What do I say And you know what? All of us are going through an unprecedented time. All of us are trying to figure this thing out. We've never been here before. We've never experienced in the history of our country anything like what we're going through. And so if we've never experienced it, guess what? Your friends haven't either. They don't know how to respond to this. Job is suffering because of his friends But here's the last thing I want to share with you before I invite our guests to join us. Job is suffering because of his situation. Remember, Job has lost everything. He's lost his family. He's lost his finances. There's sores that have come up all over his body, and now he's feeble. And I want to remind you, I want to remind you of what 
the satanic insinuation is. What, what Satan slithers in in Job 1 and, and insinuates to God is that, uh, God, if you allow me to, to affect that kind of stuff, Job won't be faithful. And so, so he loses his family. He loses his marriage. His children are gone. His status in the community is gone. And then Satan comes back and says, yeah, he's still faithful now, but let me touch his body. And so he becomes so sick that sores begin to well up all over his body. And then in Job 13 and verse 15, he says something that illustrates that this veil between us and God, gets real thin when we're going through seasons of suffering and difficulty. He says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him, one translation says. Another translation says, yet will I hope in him. And then he goes on in verse 16, and he says, indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance. One translation says, indeed, he shall be my salvation. What I love about this is, it is clear that, that in the midst of his suffering, Job has got a revelation from God. That there, that there has been an encounter between Job and God unlike any other time in Job's life. Because Job says, though he slay me. Job recognizes that, that he's in this situation not because of anything that he did. Job is not, when he says he, he's not talking about himself. And when he says he, he's also not talking about Satan. Job, when he says, though he slay me, he says, I know that I'm in this because God has orchestrated it. I know that I'm going through what I'm going through because of God. He says, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. There's been a revelation. Job understands, wait a minute, wait a minute, I can't blame this on the enemy. Wait a minute, I can't blame this on myself. He says, God is doing this. This revelation between God and Job, this veil has gotten so thin. Job says, I know why I'm in this. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm going through. It's because God has orchestrated this, and in the midst of my pain, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to trust him. And he even says prophetically, somehow, some way, this is going to turn out for my deliverance. How can he say that? He can say that because going through this season of difficulty, going through this season of suffering, the veil has gotten thinner. One of the things that God wants to do in this season, listen to me, is he wants to get closer to you. One of the, one of the things... That's uncomfortable, but so precious, is that while we're going through these times of difficulty, God says, I'm right here. I'm actually closer to you now. It's very interesting that when we go through things like this pandemic or things like 9-11, people often wonder, where is God? And the truth is, he's actually closer to us in these moments than he is when everything is perfect and comfortable. Job says, though he slay me, God did this. 
But he says, I know something. I've got, I've got a revelation because the veil is thinner. I'm going to hope in him. He says, and somehow, some way, this is going to turn out for my deliverance. Now, you and I know how the story ends. But right here in Job chapter 13, Job doesn't know. But Job speaks prophetically and says, what I do know through the revelation is that somehow, some way, he's going to work this thing out for my good. That needs to be your declaration. But it can't be a declaration just because I say it needs to be your declaration. God wants to reveal that to you as you're going through this. Last thing I will share with you before I bring our guest on is in Job 14, the very next chapter. So Job 13, Job has a revelation from God about his own life. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. He's going to be my salvation. He's bringing me through this. Somehow this is going to turn out for my good. But then in Job 14... Because the veil gets so thin, because God gets so close, Job also has a greater revelation. In Job 14, 14, he says this. He says, if someone dies, will they live again? He says, all the days of my heart's service, I will wait for my change to come. One translation says, I will wait for my renewal to come. What is Job talking about? Job is pointing to the cross. And we know that this is thousands of years before the birth of Jesus. But because through suffering, the veil gets thin and God gets so close that God even gives Job a revelation of what is coming thousands of years later with the birth of Jesus. He says, if someone dies, will they live again? He says, I see the cross through this. I see the cross. And you know what? The truth is, you know what will sustain us when we go through seasons of difficulty? Not our friends, not our money, the cross, Jesus. And I can tell you in my own life, and I can tell you through the life of so many people that I know, that, that, that we all testify and say the same thing, that through our difficult moments, at the times that we felt like we were at our lowest and couldn't go on anymore, what sustained us it was Jesus. That veil got so thin that in a very tangible way, we felt his presence like never before. Because the veil gets thinner when we go through seasons of suffering. But I want you to put a human face on this. And so as we've been doing every week, I've been inviting special guests to come and to share out of their own life how these principles, they've seen God do it in their own life. And so this morning, I want you to welcome a dear friend of mine all the way from Orange County, California, Pastor Wayne Cheney. Family, when I think about seeing through suffering, and in particular how through seasons of suffering, the veil between us and God gets thinner and we draw closer to him and he to us, when I think about the human side of this and human face of this, there's nobody else that comes to mind other than my brother from another mother, my spiritual brother, one of my closest friends, Pastor Wayne Cheney. He is not a stranger to our church. Um, every time he comes to the worship center, uh, I got to put paint back on the walls and uh, put the chairs back in place. He is an amazing gift, not only to us, but to me personally. And uh, he and his wife, uh, Pastor Maisha Cheney, and their amazing ministry, the Antioch Church there in Long Beach, 
and just globally. They are uh, amazing, amazing instruments that God is using in a great way. And so I'm excited to have him with us on today. Because of COVID, he obviously can't physically be with us, but he's joining us all the way from uh, Orange County, California. So my brother and my friend, Pastor Wayne Cheney, thank you for being with us on today. As I think about seeing through suffering, you know, there's so many things that you and I have talked about um, uh, personally. And I know that this is something that you are um, really, really passionate about because of how you've seen God work in your own life um, as you have journeyed through seasons of suffering. What, what, do you, what do you think about this? I mean, where, where, where do you want to start in leaning into this topic? Well, first of all, I just want to thank you uh, for having me. I love you and the family. Dearly love the worship center. It's one of the best places on earth to, to stand and to preach, one of the greatest churches uh, in the country. Um, you know, I, I think this is so, so significant. Um, you know, the Bible says of Jesus, a man of grief acquainted with sorrows. And for me, interestingly, God's at various junctures, uh, he's used suffering, uh, and challenge, circumstantial challenge to bring about his purpose in my life. And, uh, I can start at any point, but we may as well start now with where we are. I feel like many of uh, my brothers and sisters uh, in Christ and church, as well as uh, who, those leading ministry, who, um, who the best analogy I have is track. I feel like I ran an 800 meters all out, pushed to the end, crossed the finish line, threw up my hands, and the coach yells out, it's the mile. <laughs> I mean, you know, for us, and the reason I believe this is uh, so significant, uh, Bishop Moody, is because we in the church have become extremely fragile. And the reason we've become fragile is because we've omitted this from the biblical narrative. Mm. Particularly in America, we don't want to talk about suffering. It's hard and it's difficult. You've traveled the world. Um, not to address this, um, our, our Christianity in the face of suffering in many places in the world. Uh, but we, in many respects, have been pacified, pacified uh, uh, by our theology, pacified by leaders who don't want to tackle this issue. And what you're finding now is that people are falling apart because there was no framework for this. But as we look again at the biblical narrative, I mean, it's it's all throughout yeah. uh, the biblical narrative. And I thank you. I want to thank you before we go on any further for reclaiming that. This is not just a message for worship center. This is a message for the entire body of Christ, specifically uh, in this hour, but more specifically in uh, America. We hear things like David, who declares, <laughs> now this is, can you imagine this, us stating this in this context? David looks and definitively declares, it was good for me that I was afflicted. Wow. <laughs> I mean, how foreign is that in our, in our context? He said, it, it, it was good for me that I was afflicted. And now we know in Job's case, it wasn't, you know, any, any specific sin in his life that God wanted to deal with. This was cosmic in nature. Right. Job was a faithful witness. And in fact, what drew God to him or, 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 or was in this case, his righteousness and his standard. Um, he looks at the, the, the enemy and says, have you considered my servant Job? And so it wasn't Job's sin, all right? 
and many assume that it's our sin that we're being uh, punished for or, or somehow God is conforming us into his image when there's pronounced sin. But no, God's goal is to conform us into the image of Christ. And because none of us have fully reached that reality, there is always room for not only the discipline of the Lord, but the refinement. I like the word refinement yeah. of the Lord to bring about a greater expression of God's glory in our lives and into this natural and adorning world. Most of the spiritual attunement in my life, as you mentioned, occurred in or after seasons of personal brokenness. Wow. We never want to face that. There are areas we discipline ourselves in, but the reason that there's a need for brokenness or circumstances that bring about the uh, purpose of God in us, the refinement of God in us, is because there are areas we're not going to challenge ourselves in. Wow. No matter how disciplined we, we are, no matter how much we love the Lord, there are certain areas we are just not going to challenge ourselves in. And in those moments, there is a necessity of refinement. In those moments in our life, the trivial fades away yep. and the eternal is crystallized. Again, the, the, the trivial fades away when we go through moments of difficulty and the eternal is crystallized. Um, there's this, uh, we talk, when we talk about refinement, this refinement, personal refinement process. We often talk about being refined as gold, you know, yeah. where, where heat is applied until, until the dross melts away, until the imperfect perfections melt away and that which is purest emerges. We talk about, you know, wine and how there's a process yeah. through the grapes in terms of refinement that brings about the beautiful wine. There's this idea of the grapes being, you know, pressed and crushed to, to, to present to us the wine, which is the ultimate goal. But I, I, I've been processing through where we are right now. And interestingly, there's a parallel between our process as believers yeah. and, and the refinement of God as it relates to how wheat is processed. Mm. John the Baptist, when they asked him, are you Christ? He says, no, I'm not the one. There's one coming greater than me whose thongs I'm not um, worthy to untie. He says, when he comes, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he goes on to say his winnowing, uses strange language, his yes. winnowing fork is at the threshing floor. <laughs> yes, yes. And he'll gather his wheat to himself and the chaff will be thrown into the fire. He'll take the wheat, gather the wheat to himself and take it to the barn. Now, again, John was speaking in to uh, a society that understood agriculture. And there are a lot of blanks that he left there that people in his time just would have understood. Yeah. But he actually likens people, the people of God, to wheat. Yeah. And from start to finish, there's a process in wheat that's very significant. We won't go into all that. You know, we only have a few minutes. But um, he uses that strange language about the threshing floor and the fork, winnowing fork. And, but there as it relates to wheat being refined, there's a parallel to our own life. First of all, the wheat was, was, was picked from the field. It, it speaks to our salvation, yeah. God, you know, choosing us. The Bible says, Jesus says, no man come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. God had our number. He identified us as his own. And he, he took us from where we are, our circumstances, mm -hmm. our situations, our unrighteousness and called us to himself. But, 
But after that wheat was picked, it was put on the backs of the harvesters and it was carried from that field to the threshing floor. There's so much commentary that can be spoken to how we in our life go through a season of being carried by God. And this is generally when we have a nascent faith, when it's new, when everything's clicking, everything's working, where you sow a hundred dollars and you get a thousand by the time you get home, where they're hating <laughs> on you on the job and you get the promotion because God's favor is resting on your life. It's like the children of Israel. They come out of Egypt, which is the world. They come through the Red Sea, which is baptism. And, you know, the wilderness represents a new faith. Yeah. <laughs> a fresh faith. Yeah. And, as they walk into this fresh faith, you know, uh, the manna comes from heaven. They don't have to do anything. Just the favor of God rains down on them. The moment they leave there and go into the promised land, which represents maturity, yep. um, the Bible says the manna stops. No more uh, free sandwiches, <laughs> or free bread from heaven. They have to sow and reap and trust God's blessing to be there. That, that, that wilderness speaks of the time, nascent faith, where new faith, where God just carries us. Yeah. Testimony after testimony, but he carries us and he blesses us real good to bring us to this place called the threshing floor. It's a it's a flat surface that was watered and swept clean and the rocks were removed. It's a hard surface. Bible talks about threshing floors all the time. And, you know, particularly in the Old Testament, there is this idea of threshing floors. Altars were built there. But ultimately, the purpose of the threshing floor was interestingly where it's positioned before we get to that. Right. It was positioned in the field near the house and it was guarded so that enemies could not come in to steal the wheat or to touch the wheat, mm. which gives us a significant parallel. Yeah. Um, before we get into what happened at the threshing floor, which was the pressing and the crushing of the wheat parallel to our own life. I think it's important for us to understand that the threshing floor was positioned in an area that the enemy couldn't get to it. Uh, so good. often when we go through difficulty and hardship, uh, we attribute our suffering to the enemy, mm. but there are times where God says, in this process, in my process, I'm going to stay the hand of the enemy. The enemy is not going to get credit for this. And even if it's him attacking, I'm going to cause all things to work together for the good of those who love me and are called according to my purpose. This is my process, God said. I love it. When the wheat gets to the threshing floor, there's so much that happens there, but one of the things that happened, and this is all we'll deal with today, is it was tramped. Mm. It was it was it was crushed. The, the oxen would walk over the wheat, and they would have behind them basaltic stones that would would roll over the wheat so that the wheat would be pressed and walked on, stepped on for the purpose of being crushed. Now. For many of us in our life, as you see the parallel, when we're going through the crest crushing, when we're going through the pressing, the assumption is that our purpose, we messed up somehow. Our purpose has been aborted. God's watchful eye is not on us, that we're no longer in the hands of the master. And I want to speak to someone who feels like that right now. No, you are in the hands of the master, even in the crushing. Job was in, even though the enemy attacked, Job was in the hands of the master. It was God's process. Wow. And that, that perspective alone, knowing that in my suffering is God's process, it changes everything. The whole purpose of the, the tramping at the threshing floor in the process of the wheat, the refinement of the wheat, was primarily to bring that which is on the inside ah. out, out. We can't use 
the covering, the what is it? I a husk or hole? I'm listening. I told you I'm not I'm not in agriculture, but <laughs> but the, the the outside of the the the, we, the covering, yeah, was not what we is not what we eat. Is is in fact it's not even what's usable. Mm. Only that which is on the inside is what's most usable. But it's not until the wheat is stepped on by the oxen and drugged by the basaltic stones that what is most usable comes from the inside out. And when I thought about that, it, 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 it's, I thought about how God allows or why God at times allows the question, hmm. the difficulty, the challenge. While we all are sensitive to God in our own way, there's there's a there's a heightened sensitivity once we experience the crushing, the pressing. That's again when the trivial is removed and that which is eternal becomes most prominent. It's when that outer layer, and Watchman Nee puts it this way, he calls it the necessity of brokenness as yeah. we close. He says, here's the dilemma. And while it wasn't Job's full dilemma, remember the goal is not just to correct blatant sinful actions, but the goal is, and that whole, by the way, scripture where God causes all things to work together for the good of them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose, doesn't mean everything works out the way we want it to work out. Yes. As you continue to read the whole all things working together means any circumstance that we find ourselves in, even suffering will end in his ultimate goal, if you keep on reading that past, which is that we will be conformed into the the image image of Christ. That's what's working. That's it. So if if I I have millions of dollars in the bank and I'm conformed to the image of Christ, it's working. If I lose everything I own, but that which is on the inside through the crushing, through the pressing, brings a greater level of glory, and I look more like Christ, then everything is working. It's working. As, As we close, Job didn't have blatant sin in his life, but there's still refinement in the life of the believer that often comes through the crushing. Mm. Washington Nee calls it the necessity of brokenness. And like, like greater circles that get increasingly greater, he says within our human spirit, our innermost man, there is the, the residence, resident presence of the Holy Spirit. Yes. But then outside of the, the Holy Spirit, our human spirit, then our soul, our mind, will, and emotions, which he calls the outer man, and then our body, which he calls the outermost man. He said, this is how it should work. God, through his spirit, leads, guides, prompts us. The Holy Spirit should affect our human spirit, yep. which should affect our will, our mind, will, and emotions, yep. our soul, mind, will, and emotion, which then in the physical world, yep. as we carry out the will of God, as our will shifts, we do with our physical bodies in the real world, the invisible will, will, will of God. And that is how the invisible becomes visible. That's how the will of God is carried out in the real, natural, and adorning world. Yep. But here's the challenge. He said there's a standoff in the area of our soul because the way that God influences us from the inside out, he said the world also influences yep. us from the outside, outside in. in. Yeah. With the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, yep. and and the the um the the the, the lust, the of, lust of the eyes, right? Yep. So we're affected from the inside and the outside, and there's a standoff in the area of our will, where the good we want to do we can't always carry out because while we're being influenced from the inside, sometimes it's even insecurity about our standing or how we'll be received or criticism, whatever it may be. There's this standoff between what God wants to get out 
and what the world wants to keep in or the influence of the world keeps in. And so where the, when there's the standoff, often the only thing mm. that allows us to progress into the will of God in greater measure mm. is when we go through brokenness, when we go through trial, when we go through difficulty. He suggests that in that moment, it's when the outer man, the soul is broken. When the soul is broken, I'm not trying to tear up the club. <laughs> right. When the soul is broken. I'm not, you know, looking for how I can please myself. When the soul is broken, I'm not thinking about the material things of life or what kind of car I drive or what sort of house I live in or, or what I can buy from the mall. When the, when the soul is broken, the, it, it, it longs, it craves for a touch from the spirit. It, it yes. longs for the purposes of God. It longs for the eternal things that remain. When the soul is broken, yes. it's never to kill you. Yes. It's never to frustrate you. It is never to get you to give up on God, but it is so that that stronghold the world has or has had fades away. And that life that God wants to give to the world from the inside out begins to flow. Mm. It's for the glory of God to be revealed. I know we're out of time, but listen, to someone who's listening, who feels as if God is punishing you, he's not punishing you. Mm. So as if this season is to kill you, it's not to kill you. You're being refined as wheat. And part of being refined as wheat is being crushed. But here the crushing is not destruction. It's simply removing that outer man. So that which is most valuable, that which is on the inside, the world is longing for, can come out. It is the glory of God, making the glory of God seeable. Mm. Last step in the, while well, we missed the winnowing fork and all those things, was that the, the harvester would put his impression on the wheat. Mm. So that when it was removed, the seal of the harvester was grafted onto the wheat. Mm. God is not killing us. But as that veil, that veil becomes more thin through suffering, through trial, we look more like our Lord mm. and God is glorified. Amen. Amen. There is only one Wayne Cheney. <laughs> well, man, listen, I appreciate you. I love you. Um, you, you. Uh, are such a great friend. And uh, let me say publicly. Um, what I've said privately to you, I appreciate you. I appreciate your friendship, uh, but I also appreciate the anointing and grace that rests upon your life. Thank you for being a part of this word on Sunday. And uh, I can even tell you before I get any response from people watching us um, that you have been a significant blessing. Thank you, my brother. I love you. Man, listen, thank you for this honor. I love you with all my heart and uh, and look forward to being with you again once the dust settles. Yes, sir. Will do. We hope you enjoyed this message from Pastor Van Moody. For more information about Van Moody Ministries, please visit vanmoody.org. Thank you for joining us and have a blessed week.